Boker Tov Yosef Shulam <laughs> and family, good morning. How you doing? I didn't get to hear you today. Welcome to North Boulevard. All of you, welcome. Glad that you're with us. I have missed enough Sundays that when there's good news, I like to sort of catch up with you guys. The West Campus had a bicycle parade on Monday, and I'm told they picked up like seven families in the life groups as they took out their bicycles into the middle of the community. And in addition to that, we have 76, I think, of our teenagers and adults who've gone in. So now it's the first big trip we've been able to have since the pandemic. And so most of them have never been, most of the teenagers, I think all but maybe one, have never been to Ensenada to the city of children. Then our vacation Bible school two weeks ago had um, record crowds going all the way back to the 1990s. And uh, it was a huge party on, especially on Wednesday night. And then Impact, which is for middle school students and also high school students at Lipscomb, which our, our staff is really heavily involved. Skid's been a leader in that for years. Had, I think, 900 maybe, and 10 baptisms as a result of that from North Boulevard in the last two weeks, meaning that we've seen about a baptism every two days at North Boulevard. And so I just want to, like, say, yeah, that's pretty cool. Now, that's like the fun stuff, and then there's this sermon. <laughs> okay, I got some notes for you from the culture wars. Within the last couple of weeks, the mayor of New York City issued a statement explaining why the city of New York spends several hundred thousand dollars a year placing drag, queen, drag queens for story time in their public school system. Meanwhile, the Attorney General of the state of Michigan remarked, and I think she probably was joking, but she did express the sentiment she had, that every school in Michigan should have a drag queen. A professor of psychology, a tenured Fulbright professor of psychology in a major North American university, was recently suspended from Twitter for making the remark that having surgery does not change your gender. A U.S. congresswoman, recently spoke at a Christian gathering in the state of Colorado. She was opposed to increased gun control. And she made the statement, which I think she meant as a joke, but nonetheless, it's a shocking statement to hear, that Jesus did not have enough AR-15s, and that's why he was killed by the Roman government. Yeah, you should groan at that. A University of Southern California, uh, the University of Southern California, USC, recently had a conference in which presenters argued that the practice of self-care, and I'm quoting here, caring for yourself, is rooted in privilege, capitalism, and colonialism. I don't even know what that means. A couple of days ago, an activist group announced bounties for anyone who could locate in real time where Supreme Court justices happened to be so they could be harassed, violating federal law. When you hear all of this and a whole lot more, most of us probably have a feeling, or at least some of us do, that we'd like to go to the top of a mountain with a bullhorn and yell out, what is wrong with you, America? And in fact, some of us have done that in our social media accounts. But I do want to make the case this morning that Jesus, in his interaction with the woman at the Samaritan well, shows us a better way. That's what I want to look at. When I was out for those several, two months really, um, the preaching team got together and planned to work through the life of Jesus. And this sermon is from that plan. And as I was looking at John the fourth chapter, which is the text we'll look at today, I kept asking myself the question, now, 
I know how we like to use that text. So this is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob, and Jesus interacts with her. It's a story that some of you are familiar with, others of you aren't. We'll look at the story in just a moment. So in my past, we've used that story to talk about what kind of worship Jesus wants. And it, worship is in there, so it's not an irrelevant question. Or sometimes we'll use that uh, story to talk about gender roles, you know, male roles versus women, uh, female roles. But I kept asking the question, why does John want this in here? Of all the stories John could have picked from the life of Jesus, after all, Jesus lived for 30 some odd years. Of all the stories, why did John pick this one? Jesus going to the heart of Samaria at the well where he knew he would meet a woman and he would interact with her knowing that she was culturally opposed to Jesus. That is, Jesus entered into a culture war with her. I mean, he really did. And the more I look at it, the more I realize Jesus is modeling for us how we engage with the world. How we engage with people who don't necessarily agree with us, people who might think we're the enemy, people who maybe don't believe in Jesus or they don't believe in the Jesus of Scripture, or people who really just find themselves on the opposite side of everything we might believe. How do we interact with them? By using the term culture war, I may have prejudiced the sermon because I may have invited you already to go to that place where people yell at each other and where we post angry rants about one another whether it's on talk radio or whether it's on the news programs, which hardly do much journalism anymore. Instead, they do opinion pieces in which we just seem to yell at one another all day long. I don't exactly want you to go there. What I'd rather do is to invite you to think about Jesus's interaction with this woman who considered Jesus to be on the wrong team, how he interacted with her as a role model for how we interact with the world. That's what I want to look at. So I want to jump into the text. It's John, the fourth chapter. Really wish you would open up a Bible, get it up on your cell phone or your tablet so that you can actually see the story as it unfolds. I'm going to walk through it. And what I want to do is call your attention to Jesus's style of dealing with people who don't agree with him. I really think it's urgent. You know, since the Supreme Court reversed um, Roe v. Wade with its um, Dobbs versus Jackson decision, the volume has just gotten louder and louder. And actually, we Christians need to take a stand. I'm going to make this case in just a moment, but I want to say it now. We really can't withdraw from the culture war. We shouldn't. The culture wars are fought oftentimes over life and death issues, over truth versus falsehood, or justice versus injustice, as in the case of abortion, life versus death. So we don't have a warrant to withdraw from them. But Jesus shows us how we are to properly engage. And that's what I want us to see as we watch Jesus in this interaction. We'll start at verse 3, although we could go at verse 1 and all the way to the end of the chapter. Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's getting ready to head back up to the Galilee. So we pick up at verse 3. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone through Samaria and now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. I want to say that to me one of the most fascinating sentences in the whole story is this one. He had to go through Samaria because in some sense he didn't have to go through Samaria. That there are many roads to get to uh, Galilee from Jerusalem, the, the most prominent one being the road that went along the east side of the Jordan. So it was not uncommon for, uh, this is the straight shot from Jerusalem to kind of where he's going. It does pass through Sakhar, but a typical Jew would have gone around 
on the east side of the Jordan so as to avoid this region of Samaria. They would have done so because the Samaritans didn't like the Jews and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans and it actually wasn't a real safe place for a Jew to be. I haven't asked you this, Joseph. Uh, the Samaritans today actually on Mount Gerizim, there still are Samaritans, which is in what's called the West Bank today. By Westerners, at least, we call it that. Uh, but I'm not sure a Jew would even go to the West Bank today. There are pl plenty of places where you wouldn't want to go. Have you been to the West Bank lately? A lot of them do go up there now. Uh, where? For Passover. I know up in Shiloh they do. I have not seen them up in Nablus. I don't know that they would go to Nablus or to some of these areas. But even today, there's just certain areas you don't want to go. And so what a typical Jew would have done is they would have just gone around the area of Samaria. But Jesus, as I said, the most fascinating thing to me in this text may be that Jesus found it necessary to go through Samaria. I actually think the word necessary there means divinely necessary. That is, he deliberately chose a hostile area to visit. And that's an important point and one I want to come back to. Jesus didn't avoid the culture war of his day. He went right into the middle of it. That's just important to me. It's important that we understand that the Benedict option is probably not a great option. Pulling off into a monastery, letting the Christian life only be lived inside of the four walls of a church building, making sure that the world doesn't see your light or taste your salt, that's not a good option for us. That in fact, we really do want to take the gospel out into the world, even to hostile territory. And so that's what Jesus does in this text. Now, he goes up to the area of Shechem, as they call it, Shechem, we might say. It's between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And even today, the well that's attributed to Jacob, which would have gone back at least 3,000 years, something like maybe 3,500 or maybe 3,700 years, the well is still there. And of all the places, so it's, it's great to have Joseph here because Joseph and his family live in Israel. Of all the places where the tour guides will take you and say, this is where this happened, this is where this happened, this may actually be the one that it really did happen here. That is, Jacob's well really is that old. Uh, the, uh, some of you have actually had the chance to be at the well. It's in the basement of an Orthodox church up in the area. It's called Nablus today, but it would have been called Shechem in uh, Jesus' day. And the, even today, you can get the water from the well. I think the well's about 150 feet deep. It's cool water. It's refreshing water. And Jesus has paused here in Samaria. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. By the way, just a word on Samaritans for a moment. So the Samaritans were ethnically somewhat different from Jews, but it was a competing religion or a competing ethnicity. So there are at least three things that created a problem between Jews and Samaritans. First, the Samaritans had interbred with Greeks or with Persians or with Assyrians and Mesopotamians. That is, they really could not trace their lineage back through Abraham, not clearly at least. And that was a problem, especially when you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, your lineage is really important. And to be unable to do that might actually disqualify you from being one of the children of Abraham. The second thing is that the Jews uh, respected in Jesus' day, certainly the Pharisees did, the rabbinic Jews did, what we would call the entirety of the Old Testament. But the Samaritans only respected the first five books and they had their own version. So if you go there today 
actually, this is the brother of the high priest, and he, uh, I, was, I had lunch with him a couple of years ago, and he brought out their oldest scroll. And he showed me how different it is from the Jewish Torah, the Jewish first five books of the Old Testament. So it's actually a very limited, truncated Old Testament that they follow, and it's not even the same first five books. And third, because they don't get past the book of Deuteronomy, the Samaritans never get to the city of Jerusalem. So they settle on Deuteronomy's statement that you are to worship on Mount Gerizim. So they erected a temple on Mount Gerizim where the Jews worshiped on Jerusalem, the mountain in Jerusalem. At least these three things created a very serious rift between Jews and Samaritans. The point I want you to see is that Jesus could well have said from his comfortable place in Jerusalem, those Samaritans are all going to roast in the devil's hell. He could have written all kinds of ugly Facebook posts about them. He could have sat back and talked about how dirty and filthy they are, how he can't believe they actually do what they do. But instead, what does he do? He gets up and he goes right into the middle of them. I mean, he enters into their world, hostile as it might have been. And that actually brings up what I want to argue is the first thing important to us as believers when we interact with non-believers. And this includes culture war. It includes people who just don't believe. It includes family members. It includes neighbors. It especially includes work colleagues. It includes politics and public life. How do we engage? And the first thing is, don't wait for them to come to you. Take the gospel to them. That one of the reasons why the Christian faith exploded in the Roman Empire was because we understood Jesus' final command, certainly in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' final command became the church's first priority. Go, he says, make disciples. And I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus says, make disciples of the nations. I don't want to spend time on this. I'm trying to pack a whole lot into a, a small sermon. But I don't want us to miss the fact that God cares about nations as much as he cares about individuals. It's a very American thing for us to say God doesn't care about the nation, just worry about the individual. That's not true. We're to make disciples not just of individuals but of entire nations. For that reason, God cares about America, and that's why we have to care. Now, we've got individuals from other countries who have joined us online. Let me talk about America for just a moment. It would be easy, I think, for some of us to say the culture wars have gotten so ugly, so nasty, so uh, distasteful, I'm just going to pull out. I want you to know we shouldn't do that. I want you to imagine for a moment the 1950s and 1960s. If Christians had said, we're going to pull out of all the culture wars that have to do with racial injustice. Where would the civil rights movement have been? If we had said, that's not our fight. We're just going to stay in our churches. We'll let the world worry about that. The church was right to go out into the world, to be active in legislation, in business and corporate life, to be active in education. The world was right to go out and to make, a church was, into the world and to make a public stand for justice. That we actually have an obligation, we have a warrant to do this. And with the truth of God, we actually have the expertise on it. With the fall of Roe v. Wade, we demonstrated again, we were right as the people of God for 50 years to fight against Roe v. Wade to go out and to lobby for good legislation, to lobby for good justices who understand the Constitution on this matter. We were right to set up pregnancy centers 
We were right to educate people on it. We were right to go out and pray on the streets with women who were going in to get abortions. That, that's the church's warrant that it's right for us to do this because as Proverbs 14.34 says in the very first verse I ever remember memorizing, because righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. That is, there are some things that we do need to pay attention to that can be called political, but they're much bigger than that. That they're actually principles, human rights principles and civil rights principles and principles of justice and mercy. So, I just want to start by saying Jesus goes out and he engages the Samaritan woman rather than waiting for her to come to him. Let's keep reading verse 10. So, what I'm trying to do, I want to call your attention back because you'll your brain will chase down what I've just said about civil rights and abortion, which is fine. But as you're chasing it down, don't forget my point. My point is watch how Jesus interacts with the world and do it his way. That's my point. Watch how he does it and then do it the way he did it. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked, sir, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? I want you to see what Jesus does. Jesus is sure about who he is. If you knew who I am, he says, you'd be asking me for water. I just want to make this point. It will sound a bit of a stretch, I think it would have to me. But I just want you to see that Jesus has no ambiguity about who he is. And here's why I want to say that. I think for a lot of us, I don't mean this ugly. I'm not trying to insult anybody. But we're still not sure who we are as followers of Jesus. We're still negotiating the deal he made with us. That a lot of us, I think we get baptized and we come up. I can't tell you how many times I hear Christians say, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe this part or I don't believe that part. Listen, you don't get a private contract with Jesus when you're baptized. Like he doesn't say to you, I'm going to give you a menu of teachings and you pick which one you like. It doesn't work that way. That when we take the gospel of Jesus, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, you choose what he teaches. And if you don't choose what he teaches, you didn't choose to follow him. It really is that simple. That we can't go into the world unsure about what the Bible teaches. We can't go in unsure about who we are. I don't mean you want to be cocky. I'm not describing arrogance. I hope you're never arrogant. But I am describing a person who has made a decision at their baptism. I'm going to follow him whether it's popular or not. There is only one person whose vote matters. And it's not you. <laughs> it's God. So I just want to say, like, once you say, I follow Jesus, then you embrace what he teaches. He knew who he was. By the way, I think it cuts a different direction too. <clears throat> if I can kind of decant the other way. You know, when Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman, notice what he doesn't bring up. Like there were a whole lot of things going on in Jesus' day he could have talked about. You know, all the, all the, um, the, the uh, legislation that was being considered down in Jerusalem or over in Rome, all the policies that Jesus could have discussed with her. He just kind of kept it simple with her. And here's what I want to say. At the end of the day, if it cannot be preached in Brazil, 
If it cannot be preached in Tanzania, if it cannot be preached in Jerusalem, it probably ought not be preached in America. That is, we don't want an American gospel. We want Jesus' gospel. And for that reason, I would be really careful not to mix all of your political views in with the gospel. Because what you do when you mix those two together, you dilute the gospel and you force people to make decisions on issues that God doesn't even ask them to make decisions on. You know, I was looking at some of the mainline Protestant denominations websites in America in preparation for this sermon, and I'm just shocked. The big Protestant denominations, Episcopal Church, Evangelical, uh, 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 Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, United Methodist Church, what did I say, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, and every one of them, when you open up their website, and by the way, if you're one of the, I'm not picking on you, if you pay attention, I'll pick on the Church of Christ too, so everybody gets it. But they all just go off on all kinds of political issues. You know, one website has decided, a group of ministers from one denomination decided what they think Jesus teaches about how many bullets you can have in a clip and still be a moral person. You really want somebody like me making that decision for you? You think I have the warrant to make that decision? You think I have the competency to make that decision? That the more we mix politics with these pure, unadulterated principles of the gospel, the more we lose. So I would just say this, keep it simple. Stand firm on biblical principles and be modest about policies. That's what Jesus does. Maybe one way to put it, if you can't find a straight line between a Christian teaching and the issue before me, let it go. Like don't make that part of your gospel. And that really applies to culture war issues because in culture war issues, we tend to want to make everything part of our gospel. Jesus doesn't do that. Okay, I have to keep moving. Verse 13. So Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. So in other words, the water comes out of Jacob's well. By the way, I have drunk from that water. And I will tell you, within a couple of hours, I was thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up in eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Here's what I want you to see. Watch how Jesus says, I'm here to bring eternal life. Or if I can put it in this sense, Jesus speaks to her with grace. So much of the conversation in the U.S., including from the voices of Christians, is graceless. It's angry. It's filled with rage. It's unbecoming a follower of Jesus. So it's fine to disagree. It's fine to disagree passionately, but it's not fine to be graceless. That Jesus speaks to her about life. He speaks about eternity. He speaks to her. He speaks to her. In Jesus' day, it wasn't customary for a male rabbi, the only kind of rabbis there were, to speak to a woman, not to mention a Samaritan woman, but he speaks to her with grace. He welcomes her into the conversation. Notice how Jesus, when he interacts with someone who thinks of him as a member of a hostile culture, how Jesus treats her with grace. Let me say it this way. The world will be better when they know what we stand for more than they know what we stand against. Let the world see what we stand for. 
I preached a sermon a couple of weeks ago on a pro-life sermon against abortion. But here's what I want you mostly to hear. I want you to hear that I stand for all human beings, the dignity of every human. I stand for the poor. I stand for the minority. I stand for the immigrant. I stand for the widow. I stand for the sick and the dying. Those on hospice care, that's who I stand for. I stand for orphans, and I stand for the unborn. We stand for the dignity of every human. Let the world hear what we stand for. I'll say it this way. I stand for every single child getting both a mother and a father. And it breaks my heart to think that some children by design will not be given that. Let the world see what we stand for. That's what Jesus, he came in and said, let me tell you what I stand for. I stand for eternal life. I stand for life. Speak with grace. And then watch this, because Jesus doesn't stop with grace. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you just said is quite true. By the way, I think even in the first century, this was a little humorous, probably designed to be humorous. And notice the woman replied, the only way I could think of to have replied, sir, I see that you must be a prophet. You evidently know something about me. That Jesus actually does what? What's he doing here? He spoke with grace, and he spoke with truth. In fact, you remember this in the opening chapter of the book of John, where John is talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, it was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, who came full of grace and truth. The beauty, the beauty of Christian speech occurs when we blend in proper ratios grace and truth. Grace means that I care about you when I'm talking to you. Grace means that I care about how you feel. I care that you can hear me fairly. I care that what my words will build up and encourage. But truth means that I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to hide the truth. I'm not going to pretend like truth isn't true. For many of you, this is becoming a big challenge. You work in environments where you're being told to use speech that you know is not true. You're being told you have to use a pronoun that you know is not right. And what I'm going to say to you is this, find a way not to lie. You're not doing anybody any favors when you lie. Hiding the truth doesn't help people. The truth sets us free. So Jesus comes in grace. He finds the way to speak the truth. You have to find it as well. We have to. We follow Jesus. We already made that deal. We speak with grace and we speak with truth. And then I want to keep reading. Verses 20 through 22. This is the woman speaking now. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim, which is just above the well. But you Jews claim that the place where we uh, must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. So one more time, the The well of Jacob is down in the valley. Actually, these are not very tall mountains. And Mount Gerizim is where even today the remains of the Samaritan temple can be found. Actually, these are the remains of the altar from before the first century. It was destroyed by uh, uh, during several wars with the Jews. But this woman points up and she says, this is where we worship. You guys worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus sort of cuts through it all. He says, listen, there's a time. Oh, we'll just read it. There's a time coming, and it now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and truth. 
for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In a sense, Jesus is transcending the locality of Gerizim and Jerusalem and saying, you know what God's really looking for are people who understand his spiritual dimension, his spiritual quality. Now, it's a bit of a stretch for me to make this application, but that's never stopped me before. Let me say this, if Jesus is doing anything here, he's reminding us that the battle is spiritual, and this matters. This matters. Politics matter. People die with bad politics. They die by the millions. So like, we're really being naive. We're sugarcoating things. If we pretend like politics don't matter, we're all above that. We're not above that. They matter. You think politics mattered in 1939 in the Weimar Republic? Did politics matter in 1941 in Honolulu, Hawaii? Politics matter. When we talk about economics, economics matter. You know, capitalism, socialism, communism, these these things matter. We don't want to pretend like they don't matter. But when you're a Christian, you have to learn to see them spiritually. That is, we have to understand our battle ultimately is not a battle with the guys who disagree with us. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 6. We are not fighting flesh and blood. Your enemy is not the guy who tweeted something you don't like. That's not your enemy. And if you think of him as your enemy, you will lose on two grounds. First of all, you're likely never change his mind. But second, you'll never reach him with the gospel. Your real enemy is the devil. He's the one that has the world in bondage. And to be honest, oftentimes he has me in bondage and you as well. So what we want to do is turn our energies not against one another, but against the one who holds us in bondage. That means we fight a spiritual battle. On your knees and in prayer is where you start every battle. And if you're not starting every battle there, if instead you start your battle on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever your thing is, TikTok, if that's where you start your battle, you're fighting the wrong battle. That our battle ultimately is a spiritual battle. Even in the culture wars, we have to see it spiritually. We want to release the world from its bondage. The bondage it has to Satan. And then I have to wrap up the lesson. So the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ, the Messiah Aramaic and then Hebrew word, and then Christ, a Greek word, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus ends with this or ends the conversation. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So I just want to say this. I am running out of time. But I want to say this. You know, the evil one has turned the world against the Christian church, against the believers. Some of that's because we did some bad stuff. But even if we had done great stuff, the evil one still would have turned the world against us. Like, it wouldn't matter how perfect we are. But there's something I've noticed almost everywhere I go. Where the world doesn't like us and doesn't like the church, they still like Jesus. It's really hard not to like Jesus. Like even people who hate us, even people who are ranting about us and protesting us and so even they like Jesus. 
There's something about the man who puts the children in his lap and the man who raises the dead and cares for the sick. There's something about the man who feeds the hungry. There's something about the man who speaks of going into the prisons and setting people free, who gives sight to the blind. There's something about him that keeps drawing the generations in. So can I say this? When you interact with the world, start with Jesus. Like in the old days of my life, and this may have just been a quirk with me. In fact, I will, I'll suggest it was me and it was none of y'all. Seriously, I, I, I probably just got everything wrong. I may still get it all wrong. But I used to start my interactions with the world on what kind of music you have in church. That was my opening salvo. In fact, I probably made a real jerk of myself in high school because my favorite thing to do was to trick somebody up on whether or not they had pianos in church. That was my starting point. You know, at the end of the day, I don't ever remember winning anybody to Jesus with that. It felt kind of good because I was pretty good at it, to be honest with you. But I want you to notice when Jesus comes in, he kind of says, Gerizim, Jerusalem, okay, whatever. Let me tell you about the God who is a spirit and wants us to worship him spiritually and truthfully. What I'm suggesting is keep pointing people to Jesus. When you love Jesus, you will eventually love what he teaches, even if you didn't like it at first that we teach people fall in love with this man. This man is so attractive, so beautiful, so profound, so eternity changing, Jesus. So I just keep pointing them to him. And then I want to end with this. I want you to notice the whole story of Jesus and this woman at this well in Samaria is actually embedded in a bigger program of John chapter 4. So this was the question I asked myself. Why did John pick this story? And I think the answer is he wants us to see how to do evangelism. It's an evangelistic text. Secondarily, it's about other things, worship or gender roles or whatever. But primarily, it's about evangelism. It's about reaching people with the gospel, which is why John 4 opens with Jesus learning about how people were perceiving his baptisms. I mean, John frames the whole story in outreach. And it ends with Jesus talking to the disciples and saying, don't you see the harvest set before you? There he is in Samaria. He's just reached this woman with the gospel. And he says to the disciples, look at the fields in front of you. They're wide open for a harvest. And here's how I want to put it. Where many churches go wrong, many Protestant churches go wrong, and some churches of Christ is that we allow the culture wars to define us. We allow our social mindedness, our social programs to define us when in fact the primary mission of the church has always been and must always remain making followers of Jesus. So I want to say Jesus prioritized disciple making over the culture war and we must too. When you make disciples of Jesus, the culture war will just go away. But you can fight the culture wars all day long, and if you don't make a disciple of Jesus, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? And I think one of the problems for many of us has been it's so much easier. Tell me if I'm right. It's so much easier to sit and to write a Facebook screed about what you don't like in somebody than it is just to walk down the street and share Jesus with them. And that's a form of spiritual laziness. That's what that is. That I'd rather write about you. I'd rather scream about you. I'd rather tell everybody how bad you are than just to get up and go love you. To see the humanity in you. To welcome Jesus into your life. 
Look at the results of Jesus' work that day. Many Samaritans believed in him because of her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. When they came to him, they urged him to stay. He stayed two more days. Because of his words, many became believers. And they said, we don't just believe now because of you, they said to the woman. We've heard it for ourselves, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. So, guys, a lot of this is my 61-year-old opinion. I know that. When you tell a story, as I just told a story, and you're extracting universal principles, you're prone to extract principles that may or may not be too close to the text. I get that as well. But I am going to say this. We can't withdraw from some issues. We don't have a warrant to do it. We, don't, we, are, we are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. We are the light of the world. We are a city sent on the hill. We cannot withdraw. But we can engage the way Jesus did it. Not the way that some of the extreme culture warriors are doing it. Not the way that you hear on the talk radio or the television shows where everybody's screaming at each other. What in the world? No light but plenty of heat. Do it the way Jesus did it. And see if that doesn't work. So I do think that the clock is ticking on this sermon. But also on the style of church that we have been doing here in Uh, much of the world, but in the West. So the way we do it in the West is we have a lot of programs. We have what we hope is a really good Sunday service, and we hope you come. And we hope that people who don't know Jesus show up. We bring you in. By the way, I believe in that method so much that I've given it 40 years of my life, and I want to give it the rest of my life as well. So I believe in it. But I'm not sure it will work for decades more as people just lose interest in the program we have, you know, I know this is a really good sermon, but Disney's on too. And you got to, you know, there's a choice to be made. It's fine to laugh at that because it was a joke. Thank you, Richard, that you and I both caught the joke. Um, So what North Boulevard has been doing and and quite a few others is trying what we call either house churches or the word that's often used as missional communities where we actually take the church into the neighborhood and we try to build the church with the neighbors who live there. I want to say it sounds so much easier than it is. It's hard. My son, Mackenzie, uh, Kirk Gallagher, that's what they're doing up in Eugene, Oregon. And it's pretty much a daily fist fight to get anybody. It's not easy to do. We've also been doing that with Andy and Rosalind Miller down in Orlando. They've been down three, a little more than three years. There are 100,000 university students in Orlando They're trying to win them and their neighbors to Jesus without all the big church stuff and all, but just taking the gospel like salt out into the neighborhood. They've had some really good days and they've had some long, dry stretches that have been discouraging. But Andy sent an email this past week and I was looking at it. He talked about one of his neighbors down the street. I have their permission to share the story, but the neighbor looks and acts very differently than our Church of Christ, Andy and Rosalind do. Andy's about my age, they're about my age, I think, maybe a little younger than I am, but they kind of look like me. They, you know, if you saw Andy in an airport, even if it was JFK, you would say, well, I think that's a Church Christ minister over there. Um, <laughs> khakis, you know, and the whole, all the, the whole thing. By the way, if, you, if you're young and you want to know what your destiny looks like, this is it. <laughs> this is your, I don't care what your vision is, this is your destiny. Um, I thought y'all needed to know that. So he looks down, and here's a guy who, again, obviously lives a different kind of life. He's got the tattoos and all. He's been in and out of jail. He's got a lot of, he's just got a lot of rough edges. 
So Andy and Roslyn are trying to reach their neighbors for Jesus. So on the 4th of July, or maybe uh, the 2nd of July, I think it was a couple of days before, Saturday night, they brought in a band, the Leesburg Blues Brothers Band, and hosted a neighborhood barbecue. Here's the Leesburg Blues Brothers car there. By the way, this is also your destiny. Um, uh, for some of you who are younger. And they just invited their neighbors. Seventy neighbors showed up. Now, these are mostly unchurched people. Now, I, just before I go any further, let me tell you what Andy and Rosalind could well have done. They could have written angry Facebook posts about this devilish-looking guy down the road with all the tattoos and who obviously has been in and out of prison. Can't believe this guy. Hey, you know, th- he's the reason America's failing. They could have said whatever they wanted to say. You know what they did? They invited him into their home. They just went into the Samaritan's well, so to speak. Well, as they were there, 70 people showed up. Here's, by the way, some of the crowd as they stayed. And in Andy's email, he was telling me, um, he said, well, as we got to the end, we started talking about what the Holy Spirit was up to, and everybody just sort of opened up. By the way, I think seven families showed up to their next gathering, the next Sunday gathering after this thing. But the guy down the street took his shirt off in the middle of the meeting, which, by the way, we really, in this style of church, we don't do those sorts of things. I, I feel obligated to say that now. Um, he took his shirt off to show his tattoos. And guess what he had tattooed right across here? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this man said, I too am a believer. What I'm trying to say to you is there are two ways to engage the culture. You can scream at it cuss at it, tell it how evil it is, talk about how bad they are and why you're so glad you're not like they are. Make sure you plug in to all the talking heads on television who will join you in talking about how evil and filthy everything is, where you can do what Jesus did. Walk into the middle of it with the gospel and bring, what's he say? Life, eternal life. We're not going to withdraw from the culture. But we are going to engage it like Jesus did. Let's stand up and sing.